Selling info products like ebooks and courses has long been a great way for new indie founders to get their start. Recently, more and more of these info products have switched to a subscription model instead of one-time sales. In this episode, we discuss whether or not that's a good approach to take, and we also talk about a bunch of other topics. Let's go. Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. Hi, I'm Tyler. I run a bootstrap SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. I'm Rick. I run a software-enabled services company called Leg Up Health. Hey, Tyler, what's up this week? Uh, you see this uh, acquisition of a couple companies in my space? Yeah, you're, you're all about the productivity space. Salesforce, I assume you're talking about Salesforce acquiring Slack. Yeah. For, was it 27, 28 billion, something like that? Pretty good outcome, I think. Yeah, you'd think so. But so I, I kind of have two thoughts about this. And one is everyone, like if you read the media coverage, it's being covered as a failure. From whose perspective? So like the story is why couldn't Slack cut it as a standalone company? Why'd they have to, like, like basically they lost to teams and so Salesforce is scooping them up. They, you know, their value went down over the course of this year during a pandemic where you'd think such a remote heavy tool would have really excelled the way Zoom did. Like a lot of the stories are negative. I mean, everyone's like, great, people got rich off of this. Good for you. But kind of the product slack, this is a sign that they lost, which is bizarre to me. Yeah, I guess the product itself is a failure. That's true. It's, it, it's not a standalone company. They get destroyed. Kind of, but the, the the reason I'm interested in talking about this on this podcast is like, it really, I think, relates to the startup to last thing. 100%. Right? If you or I were running a business worth $27 billion, I think we'd be like, oh, okay, we're number two in the market. I will accept that. That's fine, right? Yeah, but they but have just, investors. Right. Yeah. It's like, it, if you're a publicly traded company, you just can't be anything other than the Death Star, I think. What do you mean by Death Star? Just like... Yeah, that's a probably a bad analogy, but you Slack is a huge success, but if it's not number one and, and every company has to be growing, like Apple already dominates the world and shareholders are constantly like, well, iPhone sales aren't growing fast enough. It's like, that's because they already have the whole market. Like, what's the problem here? It's interesting. Um, it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about like why Apple and Slack are different in that regard, because they're one is a platform of multiple different products and a brand. And the other is a brand that is a product and it's like, and they have no, so, so before we do that though, I want to just talk about the failure perspective because mm -hmm. I, 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 I can totally see someone who wants Slack to live on as an independent company would think Slack was a failure, but listen, you know, that company started off with a totally different business plan. Slack was a pivot. Okay. And they had already raised venture capital at that point in time. And so once you've done that and you are pivoting and you are at beholden to the venture capital uh, investors from the very beginning, when Slack was, I was created, it was a venture backed company. Okay. What that means is the, the, the best time to sell is at your highest possible valuation. You never know when that exact moment is, but your job is to get a return on capital for your investors. That's your customer is your investor. The, because of what Microsoft Teams has done, because of what Salesforce could do, because of what Google could do, Slack is at a very huge competitive disadvantage. Um, and as a result, they, they, they see... I think this is where the failure articles come in. There was writing on the wall that they weren't going to win. 
and not because of product, but because of distribution and, and some of the larger players entering the space. Yeah. But I, again, winning, be, being number two in a $27 billion company should be considered winning to anyone listening to this podcast. Of course, it's really fucked up that that's considered losing is being number two in such a big market. But losing, I, I totally Losing to who? Like the investors, like their job is to return capital. Well, there's two questions here. Was it yeah. smart for them to sell? Of course. Nobody's okay. saying that was a All bad right. decision. So Absolutely it was, nobody. So it was a success for the investors. But they're saying sales, or they're saying Slack had to sell because it was clear they had lost the, in the product race. They weren't going to win the market. Not the product race. I don't think they lost the product race. I think they lost the distribution race. Well, yeah, sorry. The... They, they weren't going to be number one and so sell while you can. Because anyway. Microsoft is a monopoly. Like, <laughs> Well, so this brings me to number two. We've been talking a lot recently about bundles, SaaS bundles, right? Yeah, now, this is, is, a, cla- this is, is a great is, example of that. Oh my god! Right. Gosh. Is Salesforce going to bundle Slack? Maybe, maybe not. It's, it's not as natural, but it's very clear the reason Slack lost the distribution game is because Microsoft, Microsoft bundled Teams yes. with 365. Just goes to show how, I mean, in this case, I would argue it's like almost anti-competitive, like quasi borderline break them up monopoly illegal but think about it and not not through that sense just think about any company that's bundling SaaS products together like this is a really compelling example of why that works this is why big companies have scale advantages um not not only did microsoft already have the distribution to go distribute this thing into their existing enterprise accounts that they've had for years but they have the ability to not not care about making as much money although they are mm-hmm. making a lot of money by bundling things together and saying, yeah, well, we don't care. We'd, we'd like to have a, a little bit of, uh, we'd, we'd rather have a little bit of, of uh, a, a smaller pie than nothing at all. Yeah. It, it gives me hope though. I mean, it's, it's shady the way this particular one happened, but you know, I've been talking about for less than CRM for a long time, building additional products and it, it, makes me feel a little more validated in the hypothesis that if we, we already have a, what to some of our customers, a great CRM, not, it's not for everybody, but a lot of people think is a great CRM. If we can add an average appointment scheduler to it, people are going to use it. If we could add an average internal team chat tool. Now my goal is to do better than average to make something really good, but I don't know. This this just further solidifies to me that this bundle thing has legs. Yeah. So let's, well, let's, before we go there, I just want to make a couple of observations. Let's, let's clarify our observations. One, Slack was a success for the investors. Okay. The investors are happy, I believe, based on what I've read. And especially when you consider that they, at one point in time, thought they had gone to zero, the original investors. There's no question. Absolutely no debate about... I mean, they, they sold... I think a hundred times revenue. There, there was no question that it was a successful for them. <laughs> yeah, and and they sold because they thought this was the highest possible return point for their investors, and their investors were ready to accept that. They wouldn't have sold otherwise if they thought there was more opportunity to be had. They would have kept going. They would have raised more money, but they saw the writing on the wall. Why did they see the writing on the wall? Well, there's some big boys out there, and uh, those big boys have greater competitive, like stronger competitive advantages. So it was either, you know, either they needed to build more competitive advantage, which would have taken a lot of money and more risk and potential loss of value to the investors, or they needed to partner up with a big boy who they could, would allow them to compete with Microsoft Teams, for example. Um, And that's Salesforce. So 
that's but but this is only a relevant question to a venture back company. If you're a startup to last company, this never comes up because you don't care about returning investor money, and you can choose to be happy with a like losing your status as number one and building a great company and taking a long time to figure that out. It doesn't yep. even apply. Well, no, I mean, it, it's, it's lessons we can learn. Like, this is why you don't raise money, right? Because they should feel like that was, they should, any company sitting on that should feel like it's a success and, and instead they feel like they lost to teams, which is just fucked up. Anyway, okay. Yeah, so so on the, on the so taking your takeaway on the rundles, um, I hate that word. I can't believe I've adopted it. You're the one saying it. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say, uh, gosh. I just I'm see saying Scott. bundles now. You yeah. told me not to say bundles, bundles anymore. <laughs> so bundling subscription services. I, I do think you have a point there. And you can actually, you you can do that because you already have distribution in place. And so you can now take advantage of your existing distribution advantages and 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 do it exactly what Microsoft Teams is doing um, to Slack, but on a much smaller scale and a much niche, more niche market. And you can take as long as you want to to do it because you are, own your company. You're a start to last company. Exactly. And and yeah, you look at this, like Slack is clearly, most people think it's a better product than Teams. It's a commodity. This is what we talked about, what was it, last week or two weeks ago? It's a com- commodity. Chat doesn't, like, I, I mean, none of us should aspire to make the second best product. We should all try to make the best product. But if something's a commodity, to, in my opinion, it's going to end up in a bundle one way or another. There's There are not going to be standalone products like that 10 years from now. It's a pretty amazing the cycle that you've gone through from sparse trying to build something innovative to now calling your CRM appointment scheduling and your future product pipeline commodity products that you're basically going to bundle together and destroy competition on. It's a, now it's there's a, that's there's very a interesting. Uh, it is. I totally agree with you, and it's uh, it's not something I'm totally comfortable like owning yet. But the interesting other side of this is look at Notion. Notion is a product that. Uh, it's it's one product that kind of replaces Trello and Dropbox Paper, or what, like some kind of note taking tool, Airtable. It kind of it's one thing that replaces all of them, but because it's like a really tightly integrated together, doing it all in one thing rather than three or four separate things bundled together, it's like the next level up. So I think like the first level is take a commodified product, bundle them together, and that's going to sell better than all these separate products. But the next level up is can you? build one experience that unifies them all together, and then it's even better than the bundle. And maybe that's, you said things bundle and unbundle. And what the, what the point is, when innovation happens is when you unbundle. I think maybe that, maybe we already can see one cycle ahead. So the cycle, things are bundling, and then they will unbundle because we will build a unified product that solves multiple problems at once. Yeah, the interesting thing is like, what does Notion do when, I guess this is more of an, the other thing for Slack is I think that enterprise is a special space where you mm-hmm. can get knocked out of the park. You can get knocked out pretty much faster by a big player than say a niche market like small business CRM. That's a great point. If if Slack hadn't needed to go after enterprise, they, they would still be number one. It's that they're trying to get into these deals that, you know, companies are only buying Microsoft or IBM or, you know, those types. So cool. Uh, what's on your mind? Well, I stri- did you see Stripe Treasury? That, yeah. Did you see that got released? That's kind of cool. I, it looks so awesome. I feel like this can, like, it, if you, like, think 50 years ahead of, like, small business services, that could be a less annoying thing that you do at some point. So how would you describe what Stripe Treasury is? Because I'll admit, I don't even fully understand okay. what they're going for. I have to admit this, too. For. I have to admit the same thing. So I was hoping, I, I put it on here because I was hoping you could explain it to me. But my understanding <laughs> is basically... 
it's a way to offer, it's a platform as a service for banking. So basically you can offer financial services as, as you were a bank to your customers through just like you can offer you know, subscription billing and online billing, uh, but you can do it through Stripe and their API system. Do I got that right? That's how I interpreted it. I was like, so, so let me give an analogy with a different product, Twilio, which is an API for phone services. I went in and built my company's phone service with Twilio. So instead of buying Ring Central or something like that, I built it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we built it ourselves. I, the first thing, time I saw Stripe Treasury this morning, I was like, oh, can I go build my own bank account that same way? That's what it looks like. But then I was reading about it on Hacker News and a bunch of people pointed out Stripe's terms of service disallow financial services companies from using them. So it's a li- it doesn't seem like they want you to build a bank. But I don't know what they... I can't figure oh, out what they do I want see, you to I'm build. I'm looking at the site right now. It's uh, stripe.com slash treasury. Banking as a service. So... Okay, here's an application I would use this for. So one one thing they say on here is building blocks for financial services. And the five kind of key things they have is create accounts, store funds, move money, which I think is huge, pay bills, and attach payment cards. One, Let me give you one example of how I might use this. People keep... One of the biggest challenges is um, because when you offer an HRA to employees, a health reimbursement arrangement mm-hmm. where you're giving 300 bucks a month to each employee, they have to go buy their own health insurance and then submit it for reimbursement. Oftentimes, you are there's not a great way to get that employee the money without being the payroll company because the payroll company has the ACH information, and it's a it's incredibly cumbersome to get the capabilities to move ACH money move money via ACH from mm-hmm. one per one person's account to to multiple people's account. This is basically a way to do that where you know in like leg up benefits, for example, I could make it so stipends you know get paid directly to employees direct deposit in their bank account outside of payroll um, without having to go through payroll. So it's not that the employees are using you as their bank. It's that you you have one bank account per customer of yours that's sort of a middleman between the customer's bank account and multiple employee bank accounts. And it's just that's how you're initiating the ACH transfers. Yep. And it looks like you can actually create an account from scratch. So this Mm -hmm. is where it gets big. So take someone who maybe doesn't have an account and you need to create one for them. You could technically do that through your platform as well. The bank partners are at Goldman Sachs, City. I'm not familiar with that logo. And then Barclays. So uh, I don't have any... I've never banked with any of those guys. Yeah, me neither. Um, yeah, it's unclear to me if Stripe would allow or or if like an intended use case is like, oh, let, like, let's say someone out there doesn't have a startup right now. You could look at this and be like, I'm going to go start a new online bank for startups or something like that. It's not clear to me if that's a use case they're really going to support, but maybe. But what you said is a very interesting one. I'll be really interested to see the pricing because, you know, normally stuff like that Stripe does is kind of a percentage of transactions or something like that. I bet this is going to come with big enough of a price tag. Like just to throw out a number, it might be $10 per user per month. It's too much. Which is, it's not, it's not a lot for a bank account, but it's too much to be like every single one of my customers is going to have one of these because you know, that's an extra $10 you have to charge to the customer one way or another. I feel like this is something, yeah, I think, I I think this is something where they're going to release it. um, And what's going to end up happening is the use cases are going to, people are going to want to use this in ways that they didn't intend. And then they're going to expand it to something much more than what it is currently. Yeah. I, I really have to imagine Stripe's 
long-term goal is to be the bank. Yeah. Like not to partner with Goldman Sachs, but to just be the actual bank itself. But I, I imagine that's a pretty serious undertaking. Yeah. I mean, this, there's a lot of cool stuff in here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, cool. How about, uh, but, like works? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had a question for you. Like, would you ever see yourself adding financial services to your offering or is that something that you're, I mean, I could, like, it seems like people who have a CRM are very focused on acquiring customers and you could do some sort of interesting, like help them grow their sales team financing. Yeah. It really appeals to me in the sense that kind of the long, long term goal with less knowing CRM is business in a box. Like imagine someone wants to start a new business. We want to get your domain name for you, set up your website for you, get your phone number for you. And if we could just say, you know, click this button and you have a bank account now, that would be absolutely incredible. It's probably, it's not really directly adjacent to anything we're doing right now. We'll, we'll probably do invoicing at some point. That's a little more adjacent, but Stripe already had tools to say, like, we build software to let our customers charge their customers and have the ACH directly into their accounts. That was already there. They don't, we don't need like a middleman bank account for that. That's interesting. Cool. Yeah. But yeah. Maybe I, one day. <laughs> I feel like there's so much opportunity there. Um, what about, uh, you say, it sounds like uh, holidays are coming up and you have a tradition you want to talk about. Yeah. So normally I, I would normally do this kind of over the Christmas to new year's timeframe, but because I was working over Thanksgiving, um, last week, I kind of did that end of year, like updating all, I think most entrepreneurs have this where there's like a set of spreadsheets and stuff like that, that you look at from time to time to kind of see expenses or projections on whatever. So I went in and updated all those. So I've got all my reports and everything updated for 2021. Do you, you know, this feeling I'm talking about of going in and updating everything? Yeah. It's like, it's work that's exciting, but also like annoying that you have to do because it's, you have to do it every year. Um, but it feels good when it's done because it's all clean. Yeah. And I, something I like about it I hate work that's just routine and you don't improve, like cutting your nails or brushing your teeth where you're like, I just got back to where I started. I'm frustrated that I have to do this. This feels a little different to me because every time I do this, it gets a little bit better. Like I have this spreadsheet that kind of project, I call it the cash flow projection spreadsheet. I, those probably aren't the right terms from like a accounting or finance standpoint, but it's basically saying how much money do we have? And like, can we, if I want to hire someone, I can plug it in and see what is that? due to our, you know, profitability over the next few years. Um, it just, every time I do this, every time I touch it, it gets better in kind of boring ways, but like the increase of expenses now, some expenses kind of go up with revenue sort of in the sense that if our customer base grows by 10%, presumably some of our costs go up by 10%, like hosting costs, for example. So I updated it to more accurately predict those things. I updated it to like tell me how much money to pull out of my bank account and put into saving, like the company savings every month. Just, it's all very boring, but I just, I leveled up from a kind of finance standpoint last week. Uh, yeah, that's a great point. One of the best things about working on a financial model, especially in the macro, like what you're working on right now, is that it's like a forced macro reflection, uh, you know, that that leads, when anytime you reflect on something, you identify things that are going well, you identify things that aren't going well and, and things that just are, distract complete distractions and then mm -hmm. you get to like look forward and apply those like get you know do more of what's going well do less of what's not going well and get rid of those distractions and it sounds like you did that yeah and i think i probably uh fixed a mistake that a lot i bet a lot of people when they're like first-time founders 
do what I did, which is it's pretty easy to tell, can I afford this thing right now? And it's much harder to say, well, what's the long-term impact of that? Because like you hire an employee, you have to give them raises and you have to pay for their software and taxes and all this stuff. I feel much more confident now that the next person we hire, it's not just going to be we can afford them in that moment, but three years later, we'll still be in the financial position we want to be in. Whereas in the past, it's every time I've hired someone, I'm just like, well, we have to make this work. I have no idea how this is going to impact things in the future. We're just going to have to, you know, see what happens when we get there. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I, a random question just popped in my head. How are you accounting for and dealing with the PPP money? Have you had to like, have you requested forgiveness of that? Uh, you know, is it uh, something that you're sort of waiting on Congress for? Um, is <laughs> yeah. It, yeah what, what's your status there? Good question. So you didn't you didn't do anything with PPP, right? I did do money. PPP oh, you money. did. Yeah, you did. Oh, it's okay. a very small amount, but like right. I did a little bit. And my bank keeps telling me, like, wait. And it's like I want to get done with this. So I don't have to look at it anymore. Yeah. So we had everything lined up to file for forgiveness this year, and then we had a call with our accountant, and they said what, in retrospect, is obvious, which is until it's forgiven, it's a loan. So it doesn't show up on your balance sheet at all, really, um, or or it's not it's not income on your balance sheet because it's a loan. It's a liability. Yeah. As soon as it's forgiven, apparently it's kind of like right now it would be considered income, but our accountant says everyone thinks they're going to update it. So it's not so like it wouldn't be taxable income, but that hasn't happened yet. So he was like, this is going to get figured out in 2021. Don't apply for forgiveness until 2021. And that, that way you can, you don't have to worry about this until you're filing taxes, April, 2022. So we had it all ready to go. I want to get this off my plate and just move on with my life. But he was like, just do it in January instead of December. And then you can push taxes back by a year. Cool. Yeah, I think that's good. I think uh, I think that's the right thing to do. And hopefully, I'm kind of hoping that Congress comes together and just makes a lot of this stuff just easier to deal with. Although it should be income, right? Like he said that and he's like, it's not going to be taxable income. And it's like, why not? It's, kinda, it's money that went into our bank account. <laughs> yeah, but like it's relief money. It's not... It's like, why not just give you less? You know, it's like it. it kinda, this is always true with government when the yeah. government gives money to people, but n- normally it's taxable. If, if the government gives you money, normally that counts towards you. Like as an individual, that counts towards your income normally. Interesting. I think. Yeah. yeah, but they got you on the most of it was, it'd be like pretty crazy to take and tax that money again because it's going to, what was the money for? It was for payroll. Like they taxed the shit out of payroll. Like, right. But if we really, really needed the money, there wouldn't be any profit left over. There'd be like you—you you don't pay taxes on all of your money. You pay taxes on what's left over. Yeah. And if if we were like desperate, you know, about to go out of business, it would all be spent already, and it wouldn't. It's matter. a wash anyway, right? Like it's a it's a, it's a it's a, it's a pass through because you're already spending it on stuff. The fact that um, you're, you're you're really not paying taxes on that amount, you're paying on taxes on the additional profit that you have because you didn't have to spend that other money. Right, so but I our tra- accountant's telling us we might get to deduct three hundred thousand oh, dollars of the it. profit that we keep, which which is disgusting. Yeah. We shouldn't be able to, but he's saying like that's probably how it's going to work out next oh, year. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure no one was interested in that conversation other than me. So, <laughs> but yeah, PPP. <laughs> if yeah, you, if you have a business and you ha- and they do another round of PPP, you should seriously consider applying. It was actually really helpful for us. Yeah. Yeah. Even though we we didn't need it desperately the way a lot of companies did, it it did. We hired one extra person that we wouldn't have hired. And we we cut a lot of costs when the pandemic started and we restarted them sooner than we would have because we were like, we've got we've got enough money that even if things go south again, we can fall back on it. Cool. I have, um, uh, go ahead. Yeah, go do, you ahead. Have, do you have another something related? Well, I was just going to say while we're talking about the holiday, like 
refreshing things for 2021, I also went through the product roadmap. This is another thing I do, as I just said, it's always completely wrong. I, I guess totally wrong, but it's helpful to say, what are all the things that we're going to build over the next year and just communicate that to the team and get everyone excited about it. Um, so I had a lot of fun doing that and all my 21, 2021 planning's done now. Yes. You're on top of things, man. Something about the holiday when no one else is working. I'm just like, I don't want to do real work. I just want to sit here and noodle with my spreadsheets. <laughs> I am so like that kind of leads right into my next update, which is I feel like a pinball on a pinball machine right now because literally I'm totally reacting to everything versus being proactive. And I totally blame Sable for this because we went to see her family for Bear Lake and I didn't work at all. And now I'm like, <laughs> it's completely just getting blasted in the face because I have like no time to think or pl- do anything planned. But uh, that's a good thing. I think right now we talked last week about the marketing uh, campaign for the rest of the year. I have very little time to do any of that. Uh, the, the, the stuff that we planned because I'm, there's plenty of stuff going on with existing clients, referrals. A lot of people are like, I'm getting mentioned on LinkedIn a lot, which is kind of cool. Um, like like comp- Rick plan- can give you advice because you have a question about health insurance. That type I mean, of thing. I mean, leg up health, like leg up health. The company is getting mentioned. Like hmm. people complain about something. I just got off the phone call, a phone call right before this podcast with a potential new client who saw someone on LinkedIn ranting about like some some health share plan. And someone replied and said, you should check out Legup Health. He went all the way through, submitted a contact form on Legup Health site, and it was really cool. That's so. That's such a strong sign of like validating your product market fit or whatever you want to call it. Like A, people are complaining enough that this comes up enough. And B, even with your incredibly small size, like no offense, but you're very small right now, right? Yeah. You're getting more of these, like this happens to us doing CRM, you know, once a month. Someone will go on and mention us on LinkedIn. And the fact that you're getting more than us at so much smaller scale really says you've, you've hit a nerve with people. That's awesome. Do you want to dive into product market fit at all right now since you just mentioned it? Or do you want to keep moving on with our scheduled uh, Well, let's at, least, let's at least give our updates here. Okay. Because I can um, talk all day about that. Yeah, so, so uh, we did have an interesting question from, a, from a, a listener that has to do with product market fit. And you just used the term. We do plan to cover that topic at some point. We may not get to it today, but we, uh, we're, there's some interesting stuff to talk about product market fit as it relates to startup to last companies versus venture capital companies. Um, all right. So I guess, uh, anyway, pinball and pinball machine, I can't decide if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm, I'm just sort of, well, well what are you doing now? Like you, th- the last week's been bouncing around. What, like I'm supposed to hold you accountable every week and yeah. say like, go do some marketing. What are you going to so, do? So a couple of things I've done this week, Kiln, the Kiln email went out, um, to all of their members. I've had, I think I had 10 to 12 signups on Monday from people I don't know. Um, the, I did a panel on Tuesday with panel labs. Uh, which went really well and got some good feedback from that. Uh, I have not done any outreach other than that. So the past, so today and yesterday were almost entirely just helping clients renew, uh, working existing uh, opportunities, and then dealing with inbound that came from either one referral, um, you know, person found out about us online, and then random signups online. Do you feel like you're getting enough of a sense from this? Is this like enough of a data sample that going into open enrollment next year, you'll be able to say, here's how much time it takes to service X number of existing clients and X number of new clients. And you could even kind of do the math and say, we, it's marketing is not the bottleneck. We can only bring on 
30 new people or 100 new people because we know how long it's going to take to service them. Are you getting that kind of data here? Uh, not yet, because my day is still so scattered in terms of all the things that I have to do um, for, for, you know, for leg up health. And then also, th- I'm, I'm not working a lot of hours. I got to be really like, this is different for me. I used to, I mean, you know me. Mm-hmm. I used to work seven days a week on one thing, like, and I could get yeah, you're a lot going done. Soft, Rick. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I mean, I'm working eight a.m. to five four p.m. right now. Uh, that's full time. Yeah, but like that's not full time. It feels really awkward for me, and I think that's limiting me. Plus, I'm doing other things with my time. Like I'm, I spent, I'm really, I'm really enjoying Twitter lately, and I'm not getting. I don't know. I just have enjoyed Twitter lately. I, I can't explain it. It's not has nothing. It's not helping me grow the business, but I spent a lot of time on there, and uh, I'm just really happy right now. So, and I and I had this reflection over Thanksgiving with my wife, uh, where it's like anything else that happens this year is gravy, and it took all the pressure off. Is that because because in the past you've kind of talked that there's a, like a little pressure. You're not earning much income for the family right now. Like, is there? How much urgency is there? Because when I started lessening CRM, I had just unlimited runway. I was 24 years old. No one counted on me. I, it could have taken twice as long as it did. I wouldn't have cared. I kind of got the impression you're not in that situation here. That's like, you need to start making money at some point here. That's a good question. So I, so last year, um, I made a good amount of money through consulting projects and that sort of thing. Um, this year, I paid myself a good bit of money um, from left over from those consulting projects. So I've met sort of goals, but I think what's, what's happened interestingly is I felt a lot of pressure early on this year. And if you go, when we reflect on our goals for the year, you'll see that in my goals, that the goals changed once leg up health started getting traction and group current sort of went away because I think both my Sable and my wife started to see it working. And so now that it, when it was just an idea, there was like a ton of urgency to like, make a lot like to to just make it make it more predictable but the the answer was make replace your income right i think now that it has traction and that there's signals like like the mentions referrals f- testimonials i think a lot of i've gotten a lot of pressure taken off of me that's awesome so i don't feel that pressure in the short term but i know it exists it if if like health doesn't like one of my, my main goal right now with Leg Up Health is get it to a place where it replaces my people keep income, but it's a company that I own. Yeah. But it could, if, if it's a long, slow path to get there, as long as things keep moving in the right direction, you feel like you're doing what I think is probably the greatest form of bootstrapping. Like one is work another job on the side to pay your income. But a great one is like have a significant other that's got a good stable job. And mm-hmm. then like one of you takes it. My brother did this too. My, he's the other co-founder of Lessening CRM. His wife's a doctor. So it's like one was doing a very stable, safe career and one was taking the big risk. And so they could afford the the slow ramp up. Yep, totally. And I, th- the other factor here, I think, is Leg Up Health is in a place where I could hire someone to come run, like do the work for leg up health and then step away to another job if I needed to. It's just past that point of being like this idea. And it's now a real thing that's a very small scale. So, it, and it's got all the signs that it will grow naturally. So I don't know. I feel a ton of pressure taken off. Now pressure's coming, coming. I, I can formally announce that we are expecting a child in March Woo! and our first child. And, you know, there's a very large possibility that Sable decides she has you know, she, she wants to go back to work, but you know, you never know. And she's planning on go back to work, 
but you never know. And so I'm, she, she hasn't said anything like this, but I am fully prepared for like, we have, I have to be prepared for right. her wanting to be a mom. And, uh, so that, that could challenge it, but it's, we're in that, the key, the point of the, the reason I make that point is, is that we're in such a good place. The business is at a point now where I be, be fine going to get a job and working on on the side because it'll keep going. It's not an either, it's not an either or it's now a no yeah, yeah it. it is i'm sorry i don't buy it I, i'm sorry i agree with what you're saying that you could do that you would not be happy if that was the outcome no i'd probably decide to go faster with like a pelt yeah yeah anyway it's it's great having that optionality is amazing i i think the number one just kind of magic like superpower is just patient being able to be patient when you see mistakes made it's people who are impatient who are like you know, this would work if I wait 12 months, but I'm only willing to wait six months. And that's that's when people make unforced errors. So it's awesome to hear that you've, at least for the time being, got that pressure taken off you. Yeah, thank you. And just to be very clear about Sable situation, I support her going to work. I want her to go back to work. She wants to go back to work. I just, I think like it's smart to just, for me to just recognize that that isn't written in stone. And yeah. as an entrepreneur, I need to, there's a the potential I need to step up as a as a father and as a, a husband, if, if my wife wants to, you know, make a different decision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So that's, but, but basically my point here is like, I'm just reacting. I haven't done anything. Oh, I did train. I did get Lena on the same page and she has been uh, doing a couple of tests. These are actually interesting. Uh, she's reached, she started DMing people on Instagram. Um, she's been focusing on the cosmetology and nail space, getting awesome feedback. We decided to reach out with an email that is not annoying. So we talked. We kind of workshopped an email last week. We came up with something that was like, "Hey, I just want to let you know we're here." It's you know, people in your profession generally have a really hard time figuring this out. Here, uh, you know, he, here's here's what we're working on. Just when you have any, when you, you know, we're here when you need us. Best. That's awesome. And she's getting it forwarded to people in the in the salon that these people work in. She's getting likes. Uh, it's it's going really really well, and uh, so that's Instagram DM Instagram DMs. Like who would have thought? I I, <laughs> I just hadn't really ever considered that. Um, do, do you think that this would that would still go well in January? Like, is it because there's this urgency with uh, enrollment right now? No, you just think generally pe- this is on people's mind, kind of. I think it's something. I think it goes back to your earlier point of like you're really hitting a pain point, which is this is such an underserved market that. Like just someone showing up and not trying to sell them something and saying, "Hey, we understand the problem. Health insurance is a black box. We're working to try to solve it. We're not like I just want you to know we're we're here. I'm here. Bye. Who does that? Yeah. Like and so it's it's going over really well. Um, she's doing some. She had similar success with LinkedIn, and then she's also uh, worked re- joined some communities and started reaching out to those communities. Uh, hit or miss on the communities because s- some people interpret it as spam um, when you start, yeah. when you join a community just for that purpose. And I think they're right to do that. So Instagram is the one that's hit so far. Uh, the other one that we're testing is neighbor. Uh, have you next door, excuse me, next door. Oh, next door. Yeah. Um, have you thought about the next door at all as an advertising? As an ad- no, not, not for advertising. You've got a certain like local element to what you're doing, mm-hmm. which we don't really have, but um, that makes sense. Yeah. So after this podcast, uh, once a month, I have a week, a monthly call with a, a guy named Ryan here who runs a company called Leash, which is like a dog 
pet management, I shouldn't say dog, pet management application that does kind of digitizes the records of your pets and makes it easy. Do you do you use anything like that? No. You should sign up for Leash. Um, Shelly anyway. handles all the dog stuff. So Shelly, if you're listening, hands-off. check out Ryan's app called Leash. It's available on every app store. But anyway, I have a meant to call with him and it's kind of like this, but shorter and less frequent. And um, one of the things, we're, we're trying to, he has a consumer service app. I have a consumer service uh, solution. We're, we think, we, we have a hypothesis that Nextdoor could be a really good channel, especially if you had a group of service providers who are all similarly thoughtful in their marketing and helpful working together to sort of drive awareness um, through without being annoying. Yeah. Cool. So that's it. I'll leave it at that. What are you going to do next week? Like, uh, is the pinball going to stop or are you just giving into it? <laughs> no, I, I, I have a block on my calendar that says, try the new outreach stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like a three hour block and it just keeps getting moved. <laughs> so cool. it's, it's well. currently scheduled for tomorrow morning. Uh, but but you know, what? If I really want to get this done, I think I need to wake up earlier. If I really wanted to do the reach out, I got to get up at five a.m. tomorrow and work before the day starts. That's definitely how you used to do stuff. I don't know, man. I'm happy right now. It's it's no, interesting. I, I'm the same way. I, I don't work nearly the, the number of hours I did in you know 2010. But uh, I go through. Yeah, I go through moments, and I pref- I would prefer to wake up at five and just go to bed earlier. I don't know. I just. I'm enjoying hanging out and great and ranting on Twitter. That's every awesome. Again. I, I kind of don't know how to handle it though. Like relaxed Rick is a new thing for me. <laughs> you know, when we, I think I've come a long way this year. Yeah. I, I, came, I went a long way last year and I came even further this year, I think. Yeah. One of the questions you're wearing, that you asked, well, go ahead. Yeah. You're going to be like wearing, you know, Hawaiian shirts and stuff to these podcasts from now on. Just like, Oh, I'm just getting drunk every day, doing nothing. <laughs> I actually, what's interesting about this is I've drinking less in the last six months than I've ever drinking in my life. Like the, since I turned 21, hmm. I don't know it's what that's Rick. A, yeah. It's, it's a, a I mean, Rick. uh, anyway, um, yeah, so I will try those things and we'll see what happens. Cool. Speaking of Instagram though, <laughs> I finally got the leg up health handle. Hooray. That was a big deal. Man. <laughs> I, I don't I don't understand why why you care about this. It took me four months. I signed up for it and then they just blacklisted me for no reason and then they wouldn't respond to anything. And then magically I logged in the other day after getting no response. And, and it's it just works. It's working now. Hmm. Cool. Yep, that's it. I I'm glad you're happy. I just like if anyone else is listening to this, this feels to me like the type of thing. When you're starting a business, there's a million... Rick's making this face like, oh, Tyler's just going on and on. (laughs) There's a lot of things you can spend time on in a startup. And like, this is a vanity one, right? Like, this doesn't matter for the startup's outcome at all. You mean having a branded Instagram doesn't matter? I'm saying like, our president's Twitter handle is real Donald Trump. Um, Having the real at the beginning of it has not hurt his ability to become president and get a huge Twitter following. Anyway, <laughs> we can leave I, I was that. looking for a high five. That's all I was looking for. I'm very happy for you, Rick. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I wanted to give a little shout out. Uh, Cortland from Indie Hackers, who we talk to from time to time, keeps saying his favorite or one of his favorite podcasts is My First Million. Have you listened to that? Mm-mm. 
Uh, it's pretty pretty good. I just listened to it for the first time. Um, I, I think you'd like... I know you're not a huge podcast person. Uh, I think it's worth checking out. It's just two people talking kind of like this, but they have way more interesting things to say. Uh, they they just kind of talk about opportunities. So it's not like updates about what they're doing. It's like, oh, here's a trend going on. Here's an opportunity someone should go after. So if, if anyone's like looking for business ideas, especially... Um, I, th- I feel like that podcast, just every episode is like four or five different ideas. Who's the host? Is it co-hosted? What's the format? Uh, it's co it's two people, two guys. Okay. I don't know who either of them are. I, I get the, they're, they're these people who, uh, when you hear really successful people, some people get inspired. I think I, this is like not a good quality of mine, but I get jealous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like it. They just, they know so many things and they're like constantly, like just they have their fingers in a million different pots and I listen and I'm like, who the fuck can do this as one human being? How how is this possible that they have all this knowledge? And I kind of get jealous, but it's also like a good learning opportunity. <laughs> yep. Yep. So it's one of those anyway. things it's like it's frustrating to listen to, but at the same time it inspires. Yeah. And they talk about all these businesses that are doing like really stupid stuff and they're like, Oh yeah, that person's making ten million dollars a month. And it's like, what? How? <laughs> <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> Well, that's what uh, Cortland says works, right? Yeah. Well, well, and, I mean, there there are all these random businesses out there where someone just kind of gets lucky or has this brilliant stroke of genius. Versus, uh, you know, what both of you and I are doing is like make it make a better mousetrap, kind of, which is a slower, it's a longer path. Yeah. <laughs> uh, d- d- uh, I actually have for- started listening to Indie Hackers podcast, and the last two episodes, uh, one guy um, that work does like Ruby on Rails courses and a guy that goes by Mubs on Twitter that does mm-hmm. podcasting stuff. Those are really good, I thought, high quality podcasts. So I'm I'm definitely going to listen to more indie hacker stuff. I'll have to add this one to the list as well. Cool. What else? Uh, looks like you've got a rant as well. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know if anyone else is experiencing this challenge and maybe I'm getting penalized some some way and no one is telling me. But Google Search Console for all of my websites has been not allowing page index requests since 10th, October 14th. And that affects me because I put out a lot of new content and I can't, I have no way to like force Google to like, to index my page, my new pages. And it's really, it does, it's not hurting RickLindquist.com. They do a really good job of indexing that, but it's really hurting my leg up health. Um, hmm pages they're, they're not getting they're not giving you any errors or anything like that Mm-mm. it's just not getting indexed and, you, and usually what i would do with an early website is i would submit the, manually submit the request the indexing of the new page but for a lot like we added a this happened right before we added all that new content to the site and so some of it's ranking but it's very inconsistent and not of not of its the more important part is the stuff that's indexing is ranking but half of it's not indexing at all wow that that is a problem yeah. So anyway, it, I'm kind of annoyed by it, but I know, and I can tell, like I, I've been watching the rankings lately. I don't, I don't have anyone to confirm this, but it feels like Google's messing with some stuff right now. Um, I don't know exactly what they're doing, but if anyone else is have experiencing like stuff with Google search, I'd be interested in, in comparing uh, notes on that and, and seeing what, what we might be able to do to fix it. Oh man, that makes me nervous. Cause I'm about to like flip a lot of, I'm about to change a lot of my URLs and Google's going to have to update them. <laughs> yeah, this, this is a rough... I would be very cautious about making major changes to a site right now because your ability to manually sort of override Google's mm-hmm. algorithmic decisions 
are always limited, but they're especially limited right now. Cool. I'll I'll check with you before uh, before I pull the trigger. I'm probably a month away anyway, but that's a sorry you're dealing with that, but that's a good warning to be aware of. Yeah. I I wonder if like I'd be interested to hear if this is happening for other people or you know Google in theory could have like flipped some switch for your site. You know, they, one of the problems with being their scale is it's some algorithm, and maybe they got confused and thought you're a site not to index anymore or something like that. It's happening on multiple domains, so, mm. uh, so I, I maybe they connected the dots, but I would th- I would have thought that, but it's happening all across yeah. all my sites. So, mm. yeah, if no one else is, if someone else doesn't have this problem, I would like to hear from you because that would scare <laughs> the heck out of me. Yeah, cool. Um, so we got a little bit of time left here. Uh, we had a little Twitter conversation or the start of a conversation that we thought maybe we would continue here. Um, and so the topic is basically there, there's kind of a trend going on right now of subscription content from like indie makers. I'm throwing a lot of buzzwords out here, but, uh, things like Substack where people can write newsletters, but it's, it's in the past newsletters were always kind of lead generation for something else. The content was free and it's like, I'll sell an ebook or something like that. Um, the new trend is people are just selling the newsletter directly. One that I know you and I both subscribe to is trends.vc where, you know, Drew Riley sends an email out once a week with here's something going on. And I'm, I, I did all the research. I'm going to tell you about it. Um, there's just a lot of, uh, it seems to me like there's a big shift from content creators selling one-off things like a course or an ebook to selling a subscription product like a newsletter. Do you? agree with that, that like this seems to be a trend recently? Yes. So it sounds like I, I'm going to make my claim and it sounds like you kind of disagree or at least aren't convinced yet of it. Is that right? Well, yeah. So I, I saw you having this conversation on Twitter uh, and people liking it and sort of agreeing with you. And I thought, I don't fully agree, but I'm not sure I totally disagree. So Maybe can you can you get at a little bit of context to like how you start why this came up for you and what sort of led you down the thinking of this as you tell me what your stance is? Why yeah. did this come up? Why did this come up? I mean, partially just I'm kind of in the Twitter circle with a lot of people who are doing this, and I see, I just see people talking about it a lot. I'm also a customer though. Um, I buy a fair amount of ebooks and stuff like that. It's pretty common. Someone who's good at content marketing will put out an ebook. I buy it. I'm not I'm not even like I'm not going to read that right now, but I just buy it and either share it with someone else that I work with uh, who's doing that or I just put it in kind of my library and I say if if I ever need to do this, it's like $50 or $100, I'll just buy it and and that way it's available to me. And increasingly these are all going behind paywalls. Um like like subscription paywalls. Similarly, a lot of like big journalists are doing this right now where they're leaving the New York Times and they're going behind a Substack or something. And I just find myself as a customer, like very happy for them. I'm like, I know the joys of recurring revenue. It's incredible. Everyone should feel this. It's great. But as a customer here, I'm not going to pay for 20 different content subscriptions. And it's partially the money, but it's also the time. Like, I want this thing for my archives. I don't want like the job of reading this newsletter every week, you know? So my, my claim on Twitter was basically that I think this is great and it, uh, some people this is going to be amazing for, but there's such this huge rush to it that I feel like there's not enough oxygen in the market for all of these creators to be selling subscriptions like this. How is that any different though than any other market that sort of balloon, balloons and has a gold rush? Like there's always, 
this is kind of just how it works, isn't it? Why is sure. this different? Why is this special? That, that's a very good point. I hadn't thought of that. I think partially it, it just, it's so much more obvious than other times. Th- I feel like normally it takes longer and it's a slower process. Whereas there was already this booming online content creator industry. And it seems like because that already existed and everyone's shifting over to this new model, I, I think maybe it could get oversaturated faster. Do you, do you buy that? Maybe. I mean, I, I guess I also wonder, sure. I, I wonder how much of this is just bias, bu- bubble bias. Like yeah. the people that we follow, the people that we interact with are talking about this right now. And so it feels like everyone's doing it when in reality it's a small bubble doing it. And if you, if you fly out to like the US level, it's a very small group of people. I think a lot of, if it were just the tech industry, I, I agree with that. But I've seen a lot of pretty high profile journalists leaving things like the New York Times to, to do this, like non-tech people, which I find interesting because I don't subscribe to any, I don't pay any journalists directly for content. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, why are you a journalist, right? You want to make money writing. Yeah. And so in in that situation, I think what they're seeing is an opportunity to make more money writing. Um, and that's just a, that's for a cycle as far as I'm concerned. Like you used to write, I mean, people used to, there used to be more magazines where you would, if you think about it, a lot of traditional stuff that's happening in the New York Times right now used to happen either on a piece, a piece of newspaper or via a, a specialized magazine. And the journalists would get compensated by the story. Um, it's mm-hmm. shifted a lot since like online the internet came around. And in a lot of ways, what I see is this sort of like regrouping of content where what do you really want to go to? Like, where do you, what do you really want out of the newspaper, your newspaper subscription? It's news, right? It's not, it's not these, these, what I would call high quality uh, research papers or, or investigative reports that that stuff is like an outlier um, now in the newspapers, and my guess is because of the declining, you know, my hypothesis I would say is because of the declining revenues at newspapers, those journalists aren't making money anymore. They just can't fund. Yeah, I don't think it's that the the reader doesn't want it; it's that they can't fund that type of journalism. And the readers, well, I would say that the readers of that high quality, like super high quality, super like low supply. Um, special con- specialized content Pe- the the readers who were reading that at the New York Times are willing to pay more for that specifically yeah i guess that's the bet they're making is they're saying you know you you don't need every reader of the New York Times to subscribe to this one journalist you could get one 1000th one of that number and and that journalist still probably makes more money so it probably really sucks to be a mid mid-tier journalist <laughs> in this world it sucks to be a mid-tier anything in this world yeah yeah that's fair uh, <laughs> so that's, that's um, the journalist piece. Um, did yeah. you have something to say? Well, I, I, it's kind of a different thing. So if you want yeah. to riff off so, that. So, so, um, the, the other side of things is, you know, people write, have written books for a long time. Okay. Stephen King makes a ton of money writing fiction. One time revenue. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but, but it's not, he has a formula and he puts out con, he puts out, I don't know how many bestsellers he's written, nonetheless, how many books, but like. There is a recurring aspect to his writing that is, this is just fiction that if I'm a Stephen King fan and I don't have to ever, like I can pay a yearly amount to get all Stephen King things, I might commit to that. 
Um, yeah. Because I'm buying his books anyway, right? Like, I think he's a unique example. I I think that that's an interesting point. Um, but I, I that that's to me what I think is the big difference. I think a lot of not everything should be recurring. We we've talked about subscription fatigue not that long ago here. Do you realize how much more money Stephen King would make if he direct published things? Steve, well, okay, yeah. There's two trends here. One yeah. is going recurring. The other is going direct to consumer, which I think is maybe a more interesting one. Like before, journalists had no choice but to go through a newspaper. Now they can build an audience and have their own personal brand in a way that they couldn't. Um, and I realize this is, we're supposed to be talking about startups. So like all of this also applies not to journalists or Stephen King, but to the person making the like, how to use this technology framework ebook. Same, same story. Well, right? I think there's a slight difference between Stephen King and them because most of these ebook people are nonfiction writers or nonfiction, mm-hmm. I should say, content creators. And that's very different than a Stephen King book or a Stephen King short story or a, a Stephen King movie or a Stephen King TV show. Um, those things are for entertainment. There's a, the, the, the mm-hmm. things that we're talking about here in this indie hacker, I, and I truly do think it's a bubble, is education. Yeah, that's a good point. So let's let's constrain this. We, we kind of zoomed out and said, maybe this is a macro trend going on elsewhere. Let's zoom in and, and talk about the education for startup people. Uh, Another thing I wanted to mention here is I, I'll admit this is pure theory. I am not someone who's ever really sold content before. I've written content, but I've not tried to monetize it. I don't think they're going to get what they think they're going to get out of a recurring revenue stream. Um, they look at a SaaS business and they're jealous for good reasons. Like being able to make money while you sleep is the way this is normally phrased. You, you, it's really hard to get the flywheel going, but once it's going... You have this customer base. And even if you go, like, you're pretty calm right now. You're pretty relaxed because you can you can grow this and make money without, like, it's not hours put in equals revenue out necessarily. I don't think that's going to happen for content creators. If Drew Riley stops writing for a month, I think a lot of people are going to be like, yo, what am I paying this? Why am I paying for this subscription? It's not creating lasting value in the same way. And that's not to say it's a bad business model for everybody, but I don't think it's going to get them off the hamster wheel the way I see it talked about, like like recurring revenue gets you off that hamster wheel. Yeah. So, but is that isn't that true of less annoying CRM too? Like, if you just stopped using it, it would people would start canceling over time because if we stopped, stopped working on it, you stopped improving it. Much much slower though. Slower. So yeah, there's like content like we literally went about three years with minimal updates. And and this was just my fault. Like we had all this technical debt and all this stuff, but, but we if went you took, a long, if you long took time service away. If you took all the service away and you just said, man, it's software as a service. Good luck. Like, like people would cancel. Uh, some, some people would, I, I think there are a lot of, why would businesses. they stay? Cause it's still running. I mean, assuming you keep the servers up and stuff. So I think this gets into like, what kind of content are you creating? I think, um, one Drew has kind of a double-edged sword in that as long as the trend is useful, like it has a long shelf life. But if the trend goes away that he's writing about in that period and it's no longer relevant, then you're not willing to pay to access that. Now, also you can copy and paste content into your word, your, your own files. And so again, like you're, there's not a whole like long shelf life there. Yeah. So, but like, I, I do think some content, especially if it's like, only accessible, um, you know, th- if it's only accessible, sort of like CRM is only accessible if you're paying um, and it stays, it has a long shelf life, then you can sort of act like that. 
I, maybe in rare instances you're right, but it's it does it's not like software. Software keeps running. Like you, even if I'm not working on the software, it's still running and like doing new things based on the customer inputting stuff, which content doesn't. You mentioning what you just said reminds me. Years ago, I signed up for Mixergy. Have you ever watched any of their stuff? Andrew Warner, um, really good interviewer. He interviews tech founders. But like at the time, it was pretty expensive. It, it was like 50 bucks a month or something, which, yeah, I mean, not hard to justify if you look at all the content in there, but it's it's like a lot more than, say, the New York Times or something like that. I paid, I got excited, I paid, I signed up, and I just binged a lot of videos. I wasn't intentionally doing this. I binged all the ones I was interested in. And then the next month, my $50 bill came and I was like, I got thousands of dollars worth of value last month. And I got, I watched one video this month and I canceled. You know? Yeah. So that, that, that sounds to me like a really poorly priced product where it's like, you're not, that, that'd be, it feels a lot like, um, I don't know. This feels very similar to what I was doing with like a health earlier, like it benefits when I first, with my first client where it's like, is this a subscription product? Like, because I was offering it to mm -hmm. uh, a company's employees for, for 2000, like I wanted to do an annual pricing for it because a lot of the value is going to be provided at open enrollment. Um, and it's like the better pricing is annual for me, but yeah. what's, but what's the better pricing for the customer is $20 per a month. Now yeah, I, I, it leaves me risk for them using hundred, you know, a dollar's worth of service in the first month and then canceling. Um, but at the end of the day, it's better for the consumer. Yeah. You said the magic words, which is like, when is the value delivered? And your case is, I think, a little bit different because they're not going to want to not have you the next year. Like they're, it's almost like a payment plan. It's like you are paying annually, but you know, we'll, we'll finance it for you or something like that. Um, but with content, the, the value, so with software, you buy the software, you use it all the time. There's not a spike in value when you first start using it. If anything, it's the opposite. There's a really interesting presentation by the ever the former Evernote CEO that who was like, when you start using it, it's almost worthless, which is why freemium is great. It's not worth paying for yet. But the more of your life you put in here, the more valuable it becomes. The software hasn't changed, but the value you get out of it changes. That's not how content's content works. the opposite. Yeah. So I think maybe that's that's getting to the core of what I'm saying is like, I actually think we, we're talking about trends.vc partially because we both like it. So I don't feel like I'm I have another anyone. example of this uh, knowledge project. Uh, it's called pa uh, Farnham Street with Shane Parrish. I pay $150 a year for access to that. Gobbled mm -hmm. it up in year one. I just had the <laughs> renewal and I was like, man, if I had caught that, I might have canceled it. I'm not gobbling mm -hmm. it up anymore. I get it. Yeah. I get most of what he's talked about. But so I think so to say, like, when is the, if you're charging $10 a month or whatever, if you're providing $10 a month worth of value, meaning you're writing a new thing, it's got some value, but it's not a ton of value, that, that model works great. But, but if what off. you're saying is... You can't turn it off. You can't turn it off. And, and like if what you're doing is you're saying, I've got this backlog of really high quality stuff, but maybe I'm not putting out so much new stuff that it's worth $10 a month, subscription to me is not a good model there. Yeah, the subscription works, I think, pretty well for... like I was thinking about this how to price, like if I wrote a book about health insurance, um, it changes every, like a, a true book about health insurance, the target would not be a consumer, it'd be insurance agents because most insurance agents don't have good access to good content. So it'd be kind of like a CE play and you know, health insurance changes every year. So there's a monthly update process. So there's, there is some sort of like nonfiction content opportunity where the, 
there is this like core thing that stays the same every year, but like key parts of it change and to charge for access to updates um, mm-hmm. every year. But again, you still have the same problem of it's not set it or forget it. Okay. So why, why, what, I guess, what's your point in all this? Is it like people should just like that, that these people are going to fail? Is it that, that, <laughs> right. that they're going to change their pricing model? Am I just being a hater? <laughs> yeah. Like what's the, where are we going? No, I think the reason I'm bringing this up is a, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are people who either are just starting or are thinking about starting a business. And historically, you've kind of had different options and it's almost like different, like what difficulty do you want to play on? And the harder it was, the more reward there was. And so a a common approach is the stair-step method, which Rob Walling kind of coined, which is you start with something like info products and then you step your way up to SaaS. I guess the reason I'm saying this is I kind of get the impression a lot of people are seeing the best of both worlds in this selling info products on a subscription model. And I think what I'm saying is it's not the best of both worlds. It's fine. I'm not hating on anyone doing it, but it's not this magical business model that's just going to solve all your problems for you. Yeah, software is better, period, the end, because it's build once, it's build once, sell multiple times. Um, There's with a much longer shelf life. Yeah, it's harder, but if you can get it to work, yeah. So I didn't forget it, right? Yeah, so like just keep in mind, if you are going to go the info product route, recognize the shelf life of what you're creating and recognize that it's not the, it's, it may not be anywhere close to the same thing as software. Yeah. Well, uh, something I meant to mention earlier, just, I should have said this earlier. One thing, one reason why, like why is content easier to sell? In my opinion, it's because it's additive. Uh, if you buy one book on a topic, not only are you not discouraged from buying another book on the topic, you might actually be more likely to buy the book because you're, you know, you're interested in it, you're learning about it. Buying one does not preclude you from buying the other. Subscriptions do not work that way, um, especially software subscriptions. Like no one's buying two CRMs, right? It's that's why it's so much harder, I think, to get into software. Is like you you have to be they're choosing you versus everyone else. It's not like an impulse buy. I'm just gonna I'm gonna get a bunch of this stuff and read it all. And I think if you're if you're selling content, you need to understand that that's a big part of what, what why the business is easier. Totally, and recognize that. But another good reason to start with content to probably Rob Walling's point in that model is get an audience, make some money. You're probably going to, through your research or whatever you're producing, identify some interesting problems that could be solved with software or with some other service. Go do that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. I feel like I've uh, said my piece. It sounds like we mostly mostly agree here. <laughs> yeah, I guess I don't hate it as much because I feel like it's, um, it's and in a lot of ways, I guess my my takeaway is that it's, it's a great place to start if you're trying to figure out how business works. You don't know how to code, uh, and you want to figure out, uh, you know, how to make some money. Uh, a great place to start would be you know, offering some educate some sort of education product. The higher the quality, the more likely you're going to have success. Um, you'll learn how a business works. Everything from marketing to, you know, pricing. Whether you decide to do subscriptions or not. Uh, and, uh, you know, fulfilling customers, all that kind of stuff um, at a much lower sort of uh, entry point that software has. Yeah. I've never done it. I, you wrote a book, like like a traditional book, but not really the model we're talking about here. Do you think if, if everything went to zero and you had to start over, do you think you might consider starting there? 
or because you have experience as an entrepreneur, you're not like a beginner in the same way. I would do it for different reasons. Um, And I'm doing it to a certain extent with my newsletter at ricklandquist.com. But yeah, it's, 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 it's not the same. I don't put the, I don't make money on that. So it's very, I'm not trying to create a business out of it. Yeah. So no, I I don't think I would. (laughs) I think I would try it. Yeah. I I love writing. I love creating content right now. I'm, I'm always tempted to, and I just, you don't have time. Uh, you don't have time, but if if you're getting started and you could see, I could make some money off of this, and like you said, it could be a building block for getting that audience. I, I w- what I would be very careful about is I would only do it if the audience reading it would be interested in whatever SaaS product I ultimately wanted to build. That's exactly why I totally ran on the insurance agent concept. Is that's not that's the opposite of the audience that I want for Leg Up Health. Mm, yeah, because you're competing with them. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Uh, all right cool. well anything else nope you want to sign us off cool hey everyone thank you for listening if you liked this episode i have two favors to ask first uh please write a review on the podcast app of your choice um, those uh, reviews play a huge role in helping other people discover useful podcasts second if you know any founders or aspiring founders of independent startups please tell them about startup to last and you can review past topics and show notes at startuptolast.com see you next week See you.